One of the ways we know we are believers in Christ, we have been raised from death to life, is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Ten marks of that indwelling will be the focus of our time coming up next. The ministry of Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, this is Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. Welcome to the program. We're continuing with our look at a message simply entitled, Who is a Christian? Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. As we saw last time we were together, a Christian is somebody who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So what are the marks? How can you tell if the Spirit dwells in you? Well. There are 10 of them that we will spend our time looking at here on Graceful Truth. Won't you join us? From Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, here's Pastor Steve Converse with today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. First point here in the outline, you are in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you, which is a mark of everyone who belongs to Christ. Well, the Holy Spirit is God's mark upon us. He marks every believer with that deposit of the Holy Spirit. C.H. Spurgeon calls verse 9 one of the most solemn texts in the whole Bible. He says this, It's so sweeping. It deals with us all. And it deals with the most important point about us. For to belong to Christ is the most essential thing for time and eternity. It is absolutely vital to have the Spirit of God dwelling in you because if you do not, you do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we've seen, Paul divides all people into two categories, those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit. You know, you can't have your toe over here in the flesh and your other toe in the spirit. It doesn't work that way. You know, we bought into that lie. Oh, well, there are carnal Christian. No, there's not. There's no third category called carnal Christians. If you're claiming Jesus as your Savior, he has to be your Lord. You can't have him as Savior without him being your Lord. You can't say, well, I'm going to come to Jesus for salvation, but now I'm going to go do whatever I want. It doesn't work that way. That's not what Jesus taught. He taught sacrifice. He taught total reliance upon him. Walking away from everything to follow him. Now there's a process, obviously, sanctification of bringing every area of our life under the lordship of Christ. And that goes on for all of our lives. I wish it was so easy as you get saved and boy, Jesus is Lord of your life and you never sin again. But it's not that way. Okay, God has to work on us. We go through a process. He makes us more like Christ each and every day. And he uses all kinds of events and circumstances in our lives, some good, some bad, to do that. That's why we can, as believers, find joy in all kinds of trials. Because we know that God provides those trials, those tribulations in our, our lives as Christians to help us become more like his son. To ready us for heaven. See, if the, if the direction of your life is not, Jesus, you are my Lord and I submit all myself that I am aware of to you. Then you're not a Christian. 
I'm sorry. It's, it just doesn't work any other way. You're in the flesh. The Bible describes you as being hostile toward God. You're not subjecting yourself to his word. See, being a Christian is not a matter of going to church. It's not a matter of believing a certain set of doctrines. It's not about living up to a certain moral standard. That's not what being a Christian is about. Now, hopefully all Christians do those things. If you're a believer, hopefully you should be in church. The Bible says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. Okay, hopefully you're living a, a life of morality that is, is in subjection to the, the word of God. So that your testimony in the world is one that's positive, not negative. But the vital thing is that the Holy Spirit has caused you to be born again. That's who a Christian is. I mean, Jesus said this very, very plainly over in the Gospel of John. Look at the Gospel of John chapter 3. Jesus said this very plainly to a man, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews by the name of Nicodemus. Now, talk about going to church. This guy never missed church. He just didn't. He went to the temple to pray several times a day because that's what their custom was. He never skipped the religious observance to go fishing or the ball game was on or whatever. He didn't do that. No way. Talk about believing in certain doctrines. Nicodemus had memorized large portions of the Old Testament of the sacred writings in Hebrew. Just because that's what they were called to do. About morality, this man was just very detailed about keeping the Ten Commandments and all the other ones that go along with it. But Jesus' opening words to him in verse 3 there in John 3, he says, truly, truly, in other words, he's kind of saying, hey, pay attention here. (laughs) I'm going to share something important with you. Listen up. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's great, Nicodemus. You got all this stuff. You got all your ducks in order. You know, you go to the temple, you pray, you do all these things. Oh, that's wonderful. But you know what? I want you to understand, Nicodemus, very clearly, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he went on to say there in verse 7, he said this, Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. Jesus didn't back out, back off one question. Nicodemus wasn't getting it. He didn't dumb it down for him and say, okay, you know, here, let me, let me uh, make it easier for you. No, he gave him the same truth. Over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter spoke of the same thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God causes us to be born again. So many times we're out there evangelizing and we're telling people to do things they can't do. (laughs) Well, you just need to repent. The Bible tells us that God grants us repentance. We just need to believe. The Bible says they're dead. They can't believe. What has to happen? 
God has to supernaturally open up their hearts and their minds and their eyes and their ears to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And until he does, they will not be saved. And I don't know about you, but that makes me feel a little better when I go out and evangelize or I share Christ with somebody. Because when I'm in the middle of a presentation of the gospel and all of a sudden the store worker has an emergency and it's over. I mean, it's, you know, I didn't even get to the halfway through it. You know, I don't walk away from that situation going, oh man, you know, what if he dies and, and he goes to hell and, and, you know, it's all going to be on me. It's on me because I didn't get through the gospel with him. Oh, maybe I should go back and rip him out of his business meeting. And say, I mean, there is, a, there is a compassion that we need for the lost and there is an urgency in our message. Don't get me wrong. But don't ever buy in to the idea that somehow you are going to save somebody. That somehow your little slick track with whatever you have and whatever, you know, evangelistic training you have, you go out and, and somehow because of who you are and your personality and the way you speak, that you're going to save somebody. It's not going to happen that way. That's not how God works. That would glorify us. We need to be, now there's nothing wrong with using tracks. There's nothing wrong with evangelistic training. We want to do all that because it helps us better ourselves at conversation and turning conversations around to, so we could present the gospel. But we need to present the gospel the way that it's presented in Scripture. We don't need to dumb it down. We don't need to take the harsh words out like wrath and sin and the blood of Christ. No, we include all that in the gospel and we share it with people. And either God is going to open their hearts and they're going to believe or they're not. It's that simple. And so we need to make sure that we keep that in perspective. And that's what Jesus did here. He just kept on giving them the truth. He said, you must be born again. First Peter says it's God who causes us to be born again. So when we're born again, when that happens, it's something God does to us. The Holy Spirit, he says, imparts new life to us. He takes up residence within us. It's a matter of spiritual life and death to have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Now I want to say this, there's some Pentecostal groups that teach that you must receive the Holy Spirit after you're saved. So in other words, you come to Christ, you make your profession of faith, and then, you know, they'll take you into a back room, prayer room, whatever it is, and, you know, they, now you've got to beg God for his spirit. And they base that on a misinterpretation of Acts chapter 19, verse 20, where, or verse 2, Acts 19, 2, where Paul encounters some disciples of John the Baptist and asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, well, we don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> they said, No. Paul explains some things, he prays for them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, without getting into a whole study of that, because that's a series in and of itself, it's important to understand that the book of Acts is a transitional book. It's a historical book. It's a transitional book from the age of the law when the Spirit was only given to some and actually could be withdrawn. It was more of an anointing of the Spirit of God upon those it's from that age to the age that we live in today where the, the promised Holy Spirit permanently indwells those who are born again. And there's a lot of texts of Scripture that point that out. 
So it's not something subsequent that happens at salvation. It happens the moment that God saves you. Romans 8 9 makes it clear that you, if you've been born again, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. If you don't have the Spirit, then you do not belong to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we don't need to be more sanctified in our Christian living. We don't need to give more of our lives over to the Holy Spirit. That's not what I'm saying. We should always be asking God for a greater presence and power that that he would be filling us more and more each and every day with the power of the Spirit. That's an ongoing thing. But we're baptized, we're, we're indwelt with the Spirit once at salvation. We're commanded to walk by means of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. We're commanded to be filled, continually filled or controlled by the Spirit of Christ in Ephesians 5.18. But if you've been born again and you trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord, you do not need to receive the Holy Spirit because you already have the Holy Spirit. He dwells in every believer. Paul states it even negatively in verse 9. He says, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So he covers both sides, the positive and the negative, just so we get it right. If you have the Spirit, you belong to Christ, which means he bought you with his blood, that you are not your own. You're his slave. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, Paul also combines the idea of the indwelling Holy Spirit and belonging to Christ. He says this, or do you not know that your body is a what? Temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you, listen to this, are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. I can't help but think that the church would be very, very, very different today. Church in general, not just this church, but all churches. If everyone would live daily in the reality of that truth. You know what? I am not my own. I belong to Jesus Christ. Repeat that when you get out of bed in the morning. You know what? My tongue is not my own. So therefore, I shouldn't be using my tongue to yell at my wife or my family members when I'm upset. I should be using it to glorify Christ. My eyes are not my own. Therefore, I shouldn't be looking lustfully at a woman or images that would dishonor Christ. I should use my eyes to glorify Christ. My money is not my own. I don't get to use it just however I please. I must use it to glorify Christ. My time is not my own to squander on whatever I want. I need to use it to serve and to glorify Christ. Parents, try this. My children are not my own. They're entrusted to me to be raised up to love and serve God. See, we, we, we really get it messed up, don't we? We forget all these things. And yet, that's a very life-transforming principle. The mark of being a Christian 
is the Spirit dwells in you, and now you belong to Christ. Notice how Paul interchanges these terms here in these verses. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus in verse 2. Why? Because he imparts the new life to us in Christ. In verse 9, he calls it the Spirit of God, indicating that he is God, the Spirit is God, and that he carries out God's purposes. He's called the Spirit of Christ because Christ sent him to the church when he returned to the Father. His role is to glorify Christ. See, when he was on earth, Jesus lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke 4.1. He's also called the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead in verse 11 there. Why did he call him that? To emphasize that if he dwells in us, God will, through his spirit, resurrect this body one day. Paul moves easily from the spirit dwelling in us to Christ dwelling in us. One commentator says, what this means is not that Christ and the spirit are equated or interchangeable, but that Christ and the Spirit are so closely related in communicating to believers the benefits of salvation that Paul can move from one to the other almost unconsciously. Texts like these provide the raw materials from which the church later hammered out the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, it's absolutely vital to have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Because if you do not, you do not belong to Christ. But you know what? You're probably sitting there going, okay, but how do we know? Right? How do we know if the Spirit dwells in us? Do I get some warm, fuzzy feeling? Does my head begin to glow? I mean, my glows anyway because I don't have hair, but... You get a tingling sensation? I remember one day a family came and they sat through the worship service and on their way out at the door they were saying, oh, we just, we just sensed the Spirit. We sensed the Spirit in this place. We sen-. They kept on saying that. And I get what they were saying. Don't get me wrong. I understood. But that's not what that's about. How do we know whether or not the Spirit indwells you. Second point here, B, there are distinguishing marks by which you can tell if the Spirit indwells you. After speaking to Nicodemus about his new birth, Jesus drew an analogy between the effects of the wind and the effects of the Spirit there in John 3. Um, You can see the effects of the wind. All right? You can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind. I mean, stop and think about it. When a piece of paper blows by you, out in the, you're out in the field or out in the street, and you see a pa- piece of paper blow by you, you don't, you don't look at that piece of paper and go, Wow, look, it's alive. That would be ridiculous. You wouldn't say that. You realize it's a, it doesn't have any life. It's a piece of paper. It's not flying under its own power like a bird or something like that. You would assume that the wind is blowing it. So it is with the Spirit of God. You can't see the Spirit, but you know what? You can see His effects. You can see the effects of the Spirit in your own life. In Romans 8, Paul shows a number of things that the Spirit does. 
Verse 2, he says, he sets you free from the law of sin and death. Verse 6, he gives us new life and peace with God. Verse 11, he's going to raise our mortal bodies. Verse 13, he enables us to kill our sin. We're going to look at that next week. Verse uh, verse 16, he testifies to us that we are children of God. Verse 26, he helps us to pray. In verses 7 to 8, by the way, the Spirit reconciles us to God and enables us to submit to his word and to please him. I mean, that's not a comprehensive list. That's just some of the things the Spirit of God does. But here's one negative to start off this little list. You have it in the outline there. And I just want to hit this because it's such a vital thing today in in the church in general. All the other ones are positive, but the first one was negative. Speaking in tongues is not a sign that the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to make it very clear. We have to discuss this point because a lot of the Pentecostal denominations claim that speaking in tongues is a sign that you have the Holy Spirit. But that's contrary to what Paul's statement is. Because he says that all do not have the gift of tongues. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 30. So by that definition, if you don't have the gift of tongues, you don't have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, then you're not a Christian. you got a problem. It's debatable whether or not, you know, you can, I'll give you that. It's not debatable in my mind or in this church. But, you know, whether you believe in the gifts for today or not, we don't. We're cessationists here. We believe that they had a certain purpose and a certain time. And, and God moved on from that. And that's pretty much what history bears out. But you see a lot of the stuff today called tongues. It's nothing more than babble. It's nothing more than somebody just blah, 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 just going berserk with their, their lips and their tongue and just making up whatever. Whereas in the, in the book of Acts, the word for tongue was always language. It was a language something that people could hear, something that somebody could discern and understand. And you say, well, what about the interpreter? It says that some have the gift of interpretation. Yeah, back in that time, because there were so many people from all over the world that came to hear the gospel, these men from Galilee didn't speak all these different languages, so God gave them the ability to speak supernaturally a language they didn't even know. Someone was here from Germany this morning and and they needed to hear the gospel in in German and all of a sudden God allowed me to start speaking in German. That would be weird because I took French in high school and I don't remember a lot of that. So, I mean, it would be really weird. I do like gummy bears though. I think they're from Germany. But anyway, I just remember in high school it was the German kids or the kids that took German that always had, they did sales and they'd sell gummy bears. And I just fell in love with them from that point on. But anyway... Just a side note, I don't know what that has to do with anything. But if I started speaking in German and somebody out there said, wow, I'm, I'm hearing this guy speak in German, that's amazing. And he's preaching the gospel. And that person's convicted. Well, what are the rest of you that don't speak German going to do? Sit there and, what's going on? <laughs> okay, well, that's when God would raise up an interpreter, somebody that supernaturally could interpret. Wow, okay, I'm going to share this in German. Okay, that's what that was all about. It was, it was a supernatural thing that happened. It wasn't something that you had to generate within yourself. And so a lot of even non-Christians today experience this phenomenon called speaking in tongues. People like Mormons, a lot of people in the Catholic Church, a lot of people in other cults experience speaking in tongues. 
And I guarantee you it's not by the Spirit of God. So positively, what about this? If the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, you have experienced new birth. You may not remember the exact time or the exact place, but you know that the Spirit of God has changed your heart. You know somehow something happened. You just know it. Second or thirdly there, if the Spirit dwells in you, you are drawn to Jesus Christ and you desire to know and honor Him. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. And while you're at our website, don't forget to download our mobile app. New and improved and ready to use, whether you're securely donating online or taking advantage of the podcasts on your mobile phone, simply go to iTunes or Google Play and look for Grace Bible Church Redwood City-CA. Or stop by our website, gracefultruth.org, and follow the prompts. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.